I think of making work from the template of the work that impacted me the most. And, and some of the most important works to me that I came into contact with, it wasn't about, you know, confronting me with unknown data when you're in your early 20s and you come across Marcel Duchamp, like that's all new data. But how does that mystery persist? And so looking at works by like Ava Hesse, those those things are so familiar and yet mysterious after I've been looking at them for 20 years. Martin Purier, same thing. They're these kind of persistent forms that are so generous and luscious as far as their viewing experience, but they remain elusive at the same time. And so that dichotomy of the things you can pin down and the things you cannot pin down creates that productive tension. That kind of intellectual contrast is something that I I could be obsessed by. <laughs> Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 237th episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Ryan McCullough, who joined me from Florida, where he currently is the Assistant Professor of Art at the University of Tampa and obviously lives and works there. We talk all about his work, which explores a variety of different materials. It would be an understatement to call him a multimedia artist, but that includes various collage works, as well as sculpture, installation, sound pieces, and how all of them get explored through various processes, free association, printmaking, creative writing processes, and how that comes together in his studio practice to explore what he describes as the known and unknown. So again, I'm very excited to share this interview. If you want to check out his work, check it out at ryanmccullaughart.com and be sure to follow him on Instagram at Studio. I am excited to announce that our 2020 Pro Competition is now open. Our juror Liz Tran will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid-career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition is open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to studiobreak.com, look for our competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are, and including a website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed, and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, studiobreak.com, look for the competition page for more details. Again, the deadline for this is November 1st. I do want to note real quick, obviously, we've got a ton of podcasts up and available on studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive, so look through those episodes. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts so do that and of course be sure and like our facebook page you can follow us on twitter at studio break and of course on instagram be sure to follow at studio underscore break and with those announcements out of the way here is our interview with ryan mccullough stay tuned welcome to studio break ryan mccullough how are you this morning i'm doing great david you know it's great to finally have you on um as you know, we're in the middle of this weird time, as we were just talking about in terms of COVID and, you know, studio practice and digital tools. So I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that, especially, you know, and maybe some of your experimental work. But I love starting out and finding out, you know, backgrounds of folks. So are you originally from the, the Florida area or where, where did you grow up? And we can kind of go from there. To start, uh, thank you so much for having me on here. It's a great honor to talk to you. Actually, I grew up in Ohio, north of Dayton in a, in a small township called Bethel mm -hmm. in a rural community, uh, raised on a farm. And my growing up period really, uh, involved more of like sports and agriculture. I was involved with 4-H and there was always the kind of maybe a uh, whisper of drawing happening or of maybe si singing or being involved with theater that was that was definitely a part of my growing up. And was that something that was pretty encouraged? I mean, obviously sports are, it seems like always are, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, in terms of theater and, and things like that. I was very fortunate. My parents were very encouraging for, for any kind of expression or exploration. And, you know, 
in in kind of high school you start to prioritize and and file through of of what do you really want to move towards and i remember a very you know important moment where i quit the baseball team so that i could be in a theater production and and my dad loves baseball played baseball and softball his whole life and I'm sure he was had some uh, amount of disappointment, but uh, he encouraged me. He loved it. Interesting. And it, was it just primarily theater then? You kind of mentioned drawing a little bit. I was drawing on my own at the house. I mean, as a small as a small kid, my parents they they created kind of like a a, a mini art studio for me. They took a, a work table, cut the legs down, and it just became a place where I could draw, paint kind of make little like paper sculpture but it was it was more of a kind of hobby it, it stayed in that it, it it never really uh transformed into the potential of something i could do for the rest of my life that was just not the atmosphere you know cultural atmosphere that i came up in and was that something that shifted when you you know ditched baseball for theater <laughs> i don't know if i was taking myself seriously as a as a as an actor or as anyone that was a part of the theater. But I think at that point it, it seemed like that I was moving towards something within the arts. I was also playing in the band. Mm-hmm. I also had kind of a, a rock band, uh, you know, little kind of a garage band that I was playing with in high school. And so everything that I was doing was kind of pushing towards the arts, it, but it was, it was very unwieldy energy. It strikes me as having like more collaborative energy too. Now, granted, like baseball, you know, requires teammates and there's certainly strategies involved, but like to collaboratively kind of work on something that's creative is something that strikes me as being very kind of, you know, interesting in terms of like thinking of, even if it's not something where you kind of have everything spelled out in terms of what this could mean, you know, but it's just such a different experience. And I would say that that has uh, continued to play out in my, in my life as, as an artist thinking about my experience in the theater of you have to rely on other people. There has to be uh, the development of this charismatic space on stage. You can't just kind of like put your head down and, and do your own thing. And I think those kinds of lessons, that kind of absorption is something that maybe I don't uh, acknowledge it as much as I should now of how important that was. So how did you kind of transition into thinking that this could be a possibility. Was it something that happened in college when you started? Well, like I said, I was, I was full of unwieldy energy and someone had recommended that maybe I should go into the, into graphic design or Mm -hmm. into commercial art. And so I had visited a, a local uh, institution and did all the paperwork and I was very excited. And then I showed up uh, for the first day of class and they said, you were supposed to buy $500 worth of markers And I I just, I don't know what my, I probably had a little chip on my shoulder, but I just knew that that wasn't for me. And, uh, (laughs) at that point in time, I, uh, I registered for classes at Wright State and I was at the same time I was, I was playing in a band and, you know, music and performance was really a big part of my life. But the turning point for me was when I took a sculpture one class at Wright State I remember after the first course meeting, the first class meeting, I walked to uh, the registration office and the academic office and changed my major. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, they must not have required you to spend so much money, you know. And gosh, I mean, think about that. I'm definitely going to be using that anecdote uh, in my classes coming up next week. <laughs> you know, that's well, that's a lot of that's a lot of money for markers. Oh, indeed. But, you know, again, I, I love hearing about those kind of experiences because, I mean, there is something I'm uh, sure that got unlocked in terms of thinking about what you could do with this. Was there anything? And again, we don't have to dwell on this, but was there any like particular slide or something or work that you saw that you were like, oh, my gosh, this this is art. <laughs> or what, what art could be, you know, I saw uh, a slide of Joseph Boyce explaining paintings to a dead hair. And uh, it was truly one of those moments where. I was like rejecting it and receiving it simultaneously of like, Mm -hmm. it was so radical a prospect to do something like this, that it it really, it it touched me deeply. And so that's, that started to kind of open my mind up. But uh, the textbook that was required for that class was the bride and the bachelors. And it was uh, a look at the practice of Marcel Duchamp, Mm -hmm. Merce Cunningham, John Cage, Robert Rauschenberg, 
that book um, opened everything up for me. And, and in a lot of ways, and, and thinking about that I was being pushed towards marketplace and towards commercial art, and then seeing vast landscapes of people having productive and really dynamic lives working in the avant-garde. Like, I, I can't explain how powerful that was. It was, it was as close a religious experience as I could ever describe. Well, and it strikes me, so with those artists that you mentioned, you know, there's maybe some relationship in terms of, you know, the way that they work. Like, you don't seem particularly interested in a specific process, you know, as opposed to what the, the message is or what the idea is behind the work. Very true. Very true. And, you know, at Wright State, the intellectual atmosphere that was in the sculpture department, it was not kind of like about technical facility. It was not about traditional forms. It, it came straight out of that kind of new avant-garde idea at the turn of the century and also kind of really informed by 60s performance, installation, earthworks. And so all of a sudden, all of my expectations for what art is and what art could be, everything was off center. And I felt like, oh, I can participate in this. And I remember my, my second, second class there, I made an installation and I did a performance in the installation. And it was obviously closely related to my experiences in theater. It was maybe a bit more theatrical, but it, it gave me insight into the visual arts and into contemporary art that I could, I, I had a vision for myself, which up to that point, I had no vision for my future <laughs> at all. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm, forever grateful for that class and for that department well and i would imagine then that it kind of left you really open in terms of exploring the the rest of your undergraduate years most definitely we had a a, a great printmaking program there an exceptional painting program there and they all felt like these different houses of of concepts i would say that the 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 painting program was really rooted in perceptual painting and so like thinking of kind of from the material of of like Cezanne of like mm -hmm. how do we see how do we translate and 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 really kind of immerse ourselves in the in the discourse of color printmaking had a foot in both camps to where uh, it you could be very experimental or you could be very traditional and and towards the end of my undergraduate I started to gravitate towards printmaking and and so I ended up leaving Wright State with a dual concentration in sculpture and print. And was there like a, a capstone exhibition or thesis where you, you know, worked your, <laughs> worked your hands off to the bone or whatever? <laughs> most definitely. Most definitely. There was a, the, the thesis, the BFA thesis show. Actually, uh, we had to submit work to the faculty member that was the curator and they would either accept or deny specific works. And I remember all of my sculpture work was accepted and all of my print work was rejected. And is that because you think just they, you know, like a juror's uh, prerogative or do you think the sculptural work in hindsight was just that much stronger? I think, I think that it was more developed. I mm -hmm. had, you know, I had, I had three years really kind of wrestling with objects in space and, mm -hmm my kind of experience with picture making and with kind of wrestling with um, making images was really underdeveloped at that time. So I have no, I have no ill feelings towards the curator at that time. To kind of peruse your work on your website, Ryan McCullough art, you know, there probably like a big gap in between some of that work, but I'm curious if there was, you know, maybe some interest in terms of that kind of abstractedness, you know, or ambiguity about objects or object making. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was that was a really long uh, transformation to want to engage with abstraction wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. I think that materialist abstraction and kind of material kind of driven work was something that I was doing in undergrad with my sculpture. And it, you know, it took a long time for the works on paper, the works of paper, the installations to start to respond to that as well. Well, and what kind of materials then were you using? Again, there's um, you know, all types of different materials that sculptors will use in terms of just making various works. So I was interested at the time, and I would probably say I'm, I'm still interested in using very humble materials, mm -hmm. whether it's like styrofoam, bondo, plaster, fabric, wood, concrete, 
almost almost uh, construction based materials more so than than traditional fine art materials. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm always just thinking about going back to that time where you're like, oh, this is it. This is my you know, my big show, and you know, and then you know, you wait a couple of years, and you're like, oh, that's not it anymore. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I will promise you that uh, I was thick with uh, delusions of grandeur. That was, you know, in part, that was what was so wonderful about that that group of students at that time. There's a lot of, I think, practicing artists now that came from that moment at Wright State. And I think we endowed each other and gave each other the agency to, like, say, this is important. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of us felt like it was frivolous work. And there was a great sense of camaraderie and competition that was happening. It, it, it really was beautiful. Well, so... In terms of, you know, that master plan that we maybe talked about earlier, or <laughs> figuring out how you get from point A to point B, what what happened afterwards? Did you have like an idea if you wanted to go to graduate school or you're just going to work or? I was recruited by Stiver School for the Arts, a, a performing arts high school in Dayton, Ohio, to anchor their sculpture department. So I became the, wow. the director of sculptural studies at Stiver's pretty much right after undergrad. And, uh was was uh, kind of writing curriculum and kind of creating projects at that kind of high school level, which it was a very unique place. It's kind of right in the heart of Dayton. Students had to audition to be there. It was uh, the most magical atmosphere. Like you just had, if you had a vision of what a, a, an arts high school was, this, <laughs> it really uh, fit every dream that I had for my kind of teaching life, my working life. And uh, I was able to work with students there in in metalwork, welding, casting, found object sculpture, even some installation. And uh, uh, probably three years into my serving at Stivers in sculpture, uh, there was a local artist that donated their entire print shop to the school. And they, you know, my boss, the director said, well, I know you make prints also. Do we want to take this on? Do you want to develop a printmaking program here as well? And so, of course, I said yes. And we spent the summer emptying one studio and filling another and and trying to wrap our heads around how do we translate traditional and experimental printing to high school students. I'm trying to get my mind around graduating from undergrad and then being in that position. It's got to be pretty daunting. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was. It, it was definitely. It was daunting. But I, I had a I had a fellowship during my undergrad, the Dayton Art Institute, uh, the Yuck Fellowship, and essentially it's it's college students from the greater Dayton area, from different universities, and you teach a workshop, and you kind of mentor a group of high school art students, and I just, I I knew that kind of teaching was a part of what was going to happen in my life, and and especially within the realm of kind of like visual art, contemporary art, I knew that it also fed, you know, it gave me a nutrient that I was going to use in my own growth as an artist. And so it it made a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting the way that you kind of phrase that because, you know, it strikes me that we're all, at least artists are trying to kind of make something, you know, that kind of, I don't know if I want to say like is mysterious or, you know, something that kind of makes us call into question things or be more sensitive and, you know, probably a very practical reason why a lot of us become teachers just because you want to kind of share that, that magic or, you know, that experience with someone else that's going to kind of, you know, get caught up in it too. Absolutely. And I mean, there's the, I would, I would probably say there's the romantic side of me that, you know, is engaged with like the magic of it. Mm -hmm. But then I was slowly figuring out that life as a contemporary artist would mean that I was dedicating myself to be a, being a a productive generalist, Mm -hmm. which some people maybe poo poo, but um, I was interested in so many things growing up and that unwieldy sense of energy to be an artist, to have an art artistic practice. That was a container that was inclusive for all of my interests. And I knew that at that time when I took the position at Stivers, I had a studio that was a block away. The house that I rented was two blocks away from that. I was totally immersed in my life as, as an artist and it, it was satisfying things that were 
intellectual, spiritual, and emotional, um, and also a, a great sense of community. Well, so how long did that experience last? I taught there for four years, and then I moved to uh, Massachusetts. Any particular reason? Yeah, went to Cape Cod, Massachusetts to work with a landscape architect, and it was just for a summer, and I really enjoyed it, and I had an opportunity to rent a studio in in Cape Cod, and so I decided to stay there, and so I ended my time uh, teaching at Stivers for a couple years. Once I was done in Massachusetts, I ended up going back to Dayton and and teaching at Stivers for another four years after that. Wow. It sounds like there's a lot of that, you know, taking in an experience and then seeing how that kind of shapes the the path forward, you know, because I, ca- I can't imagine that you anticipated that that was going to happen. No, not at all. Maybe I was self-conscious in my high school years that I just had this deficiency of experience. And I was very hungry for life experiences. And, uh, you know, from a small farm town, it was like I was living out my my kind of my fantasies through the films I I watched, through the music I was listening to, to the books I read. And then once I started teaching at Stivers, I did have some anxiety that I was locking myself into like this is this is my life now. And so I had to take a moment and and have some adventure and then come back to it. Mm -hmm. It really reaffirmed that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. But with a little bit of seasoning. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious then, was it something where you started kind of becoming aware of like, you know, I love helping people kind of figure out how to make stuff or, you know, explore that, that side of things with them. But then you really wanted time to kind of really dive into your own ideas and your own work. I did. And, and, and part of that is, is rooted in, in how I grew up My you know, my mom and dad, my mom has had an after-school program for at-risk youth for many years, I think for 20 years now. And my dad has always worked for the school system in logistics. And so there was always a service component to our moral compass as a family. And so I was always thinking about how can I kind of serve the community? How can I kind of create opportunities for, for others. And so that also was a part of the equation to that recipe of how I ended up where I was. Well, so how did you wind up then choosing to go to graduate school? It, there were a couple things that came into place. One, I had a, a freak accident where I had a, a medical issue with my foot and I almost had to have my foot amputated. I was making copper engravings and I had a, a copper spur that went in the bottom of my foot and, uh, really, it got nasty. And I had to spend three weeks in the hospital. But I realized that I I had no health insurance. And I was really not making that much money. And also kind of directly after that happened, I met my now wife, she was teaching photography at Stivers. And we kind of as, as a couple, we we looked at each other and said, all right, what's our vision for, for the rest of our life. And we both agreed that we wanted to go to graduate school. And so that was our priority as a, as a duo. And mm-hmm. so we both applied to a lot of different institutions and we, we ended up luckily and we're so grateful that we went to the university of Georgia. We had a, a fantastic experience there. Yeah. I remember researching it <laughs> as one of the many places <laughs> that, you know, stick out, you know, again, there's, it's interesting those kind of moments when you're kind of researching places. Is it like partially just because I would imagine there's like an openness in terms of, you know, some of their approaches and, you know, obviously every school is going to have, you know, students coming from all over, you know, that bring different experiences. But I think what attracted us, because uh, at that point in time, I was in my late 20s. And so uh, we took the the search very seriously. Like we drove to a lot of different campuses, met a lot of different faculty, taste tested some of these departments and just got a feel for what was a good fit for us. And immediately when we went to the University of Georgia, there was a kind of a family atmosphere, for lack of a better term. Everyone was very warm and welcoming. And at the same time, you could tell there was this really kind of deep sense of seriousness. Mm -hmm. And I think we both responded to that um, positively. And so uh, we spent the next three years in Athens. In terms of a graduate school experience, you know, was there like a specific thing that you're, you know, just kind of searching, like, I want to find my voice, I want to figure out, you know, 
what my process is in terms of trying to envision what I want to make. And I guess, especially how does that, how does that, I guess, change or divert from what you were doing before? Well, I knew that I, it was a time in my making life that I needed to have new conversations. I needed to be challenged in some different ways. I knew for some reason I wanted to go to a printmaking program that would allow me not to make prints, Mm -hmm. that I could have a dialogue with things that are adjacent to printmaking but were related to its discourse. And some institutions were very open to that and some were not. And and UGA was absolutely supportive. I I mean, I remember the portfolio that I assembled. I think there were only five prints in it Mm -hmm. in my application. But there was a lot of kind of like true experimentation in that first year. I mean, it was, it was everything that I had done. I kind of threw it out and started over and the first year was a little brutal. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, you know, I, I had some, you know, some seasoning and some maturity as, as an artist and as a, a person. So I, I basically made a list of all the faculty and on Fridays I would have a different faculty member do studio visits with me. So for that first semester I had like 16 to 20 studio visits that I, I set up myself just to like get a sense of it. I needed, I needed as much kind of diversity of input as, as I could. And that summer after that first year, that summer, I kind of figured out where I was headed and I, I became really interested in, in a generative practice that was kind of creating a, a constellation where I would start with a creative writing document mm-hmm. and it could be very expansive. And then I would create objects and images, prints, drawings, handmade paper objects that were kind of related to it. And they kind of, they found this productive tension with this written form. And that began to be the solidification of my thesis in, in graduate school. Well, and it's interesting to think about how writing in general just plays a effect in, in a role in terms of making, or, you know, even for people that aren't as particular with that strategy, you know, like even if it's just like an artist statement to kind of boil down what it is that you're doing, because a lot of times artists will kind of sit with things and think about them because they're kind of maybe more focused on something else. So I'm curious, especially like in in terms of the work that you left there with, was there like a particular point of view in terms of the, the written components and how that informed, you know, I'm going to make sound pieces or, you know, whatever the, the material exploration was. Well, it was, it was maybe they were deliberately kind of rambly, ill-fitting texts that I would have to clarify through the making of objects images, sounds, performances. And so if there was ever, you know, let's say I just wrote a paragraph, I would take kind of phrases or kind of chunks of that and say, how can I clarify this? This doesn't make sense. And and so I was creating this process where, you know, you create an art object that then you write about, and then that writing creates other art objects and you create this entire ecology of kind of an art artistic practice that is within the vocabulary of that kind of bouncing things back and forth. And it seems like in in that nature, then it would kind of feed itself like the way that like, you know, maybe a formalist painter will talk about just the uh, work kind of informing itself or kind of developing into its own language. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the time I was very willing to explore a great diversity of, and I probably, there was a priority on diversity of vocabulary um, so I was making objects. I was using some photographic imagery. I was drawing, and and that's when I I really started to kind of dial into using collage. Was that something where it was kind of like a variety of then different different approaches in terms of like a thesis exhibition? Absolutely. I had a I had a wall, nice size wall, and I created. I think it was like uh, maybe like 110 discrete objects and images that fit together as this huge constellation. It just kind of looked like a, like a knolled table Mm -hmm. surface. And of course, now I look at the kind of works of paper and on paper, the collage that I'm making now. And that was, that was clearly the template for, for what I'm doing now. And, and thinking about maybe not each individual component, but I liked how I was composing and thinking about a hard edge, a soft edge, this kind of like a wavering edge, this shape next to that shape, that became what I, what I think of as like, like an epic format, like 
when I started to have those realizations, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the kind of work I want to make until I die. Like this is like, <laughs> I call it old man, like old man work. <laughs> and I found, I found my old man work in that thesis exhibition. And so when I left graduate school and moved to Tampa to start teaching here, again, I kind of threw everything out that I created in graduate school, except for that kernel mm-hmm. of these arrangements. And for me, that manifested in, I was printing a lot of raw material, color, texture, and then I that was material that I would then cut up to create these arrangements in paper collage. Well, and in terms of the collage works, especially, you were kind of talking about, you know, doing handmade paper. Is that something that is kind of integral to the to majority of the components in the work? First of all, I love that question because in works on paper, there is usually a this hierarchy or this kind of temple of paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I like to unite the temple of paper with the thrift store of paper. And so sure. I love taking a piece of antique handmade paper and having that in the same collage as a piece of Xerox and that occupying the same space as a piece of a woodcut that I made. Every collage being the convergence of all of these contexts, that that really lit me on fire once I left graduate school. That that was a big transformation and, and has sustained me. And I would imagine then that you can kind of float between, you know, sculpture versus works on paper versus print. You know, I'm especially interested in where the, the books kind of come into play as well, because that's also something that you're absolutely doing. So, again, I think I asked you a, a 20 minute question there. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to kind of like how paper collage connects to other things, it's, it's almost the same as that generative writing practice. Like every print would create new inquiry. And sometimes one single component in a collage, I would need a small artist book to work out that one piece, that one form. And so I started making kind of zines or artist books, like small pamphlets. And I was making those like once every two weeks to kind of unfold these larger collage that I was making. And then I was responding to some of those pages with text again. And of course, I I think uh, maybe it's an easier connection to make when it comes to sculpture or objects that I'm creating because uh, the nature of the sculpture that I make is kind of like very kind of bricolage, like what I have at hand and I find ways to unify it, whether it's through dipping it in latex or fusing it together with different kinds of, of adhesives or even taping parts together. But there's the kind of overt um, psychology that this is from you know, this one object is the meeting ground for material with diverse context. One thing that stuck out with me reading your artist statement was this phrase known and unknown, you know, and I think that's such an interesting place to kind of work from because to me, I mean, almost that summarizes my work in some ways, you know, of course. And, And, and maybe that's for some a bit too general, but, you know, I think of making work from the template of the work that impacted me the most and some of the most important works to me that I came into contact with it wasn't about confronting me with unknown data Mm -hmm. when you're in your early 20s and you come across Marcel Duchamp that's all new data but how does that mystery persist and so looking at works by like Ava Hesse Mm -hmm. those those things are so familiar and yet mysterious after I've been looking at them for 20 years, Martin Purier, same thing. They're these kind of persistent forms that are so generous and luscious as far as their viewing experience, but they remain elusive at the same time. And so that dichotomy of the things you can pin down and the things you cannot pin down creates that productive tension. That kind of intellectual contrast is something that I I could be obsessed by. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, and I think that shows up in the work. And one of the things that's interesting, too, is like you can find things that are recognizable in it in terms of what they are. And then an aspect of it about not knowing what they are. You know, you can identify maybe that piece of really nice paper versus, you know, a found object or, again, that's kind of like an interesting area to operate in. 
Well, and you start to you start to think about what your expectations are out of materials and what are their kind of limitations and inherent qualities that kind of like add more layers to the conversation that you're you're cultivating in each work of art. Like it's not just I am the master of this paint tube. I'm going to tell it who's you know who's boss mm-hmm. with my with my kind of experience in my facility there has to be kind of that porousness with the material and say okay like this is not to be too kind of like the energy guy but sometimes certain materials lend themselves to certain formal manifestations and this is just through spending time with printed material with with discarded material you get a sense you get a feeling and and you trust your intuition I know that that is a that's a can be a very hard pill to swallow in an academic setting, but I think developing a sensibility cultivates intuition, and, and so some of these works they feel very intuitive. But it's been years of of collection, not only of physical material, but of that kind of the mental material, the intellectual material to make them happen. Well, and one thing that is interesting to me is I could imagine how, you know, these collage works might be made in terms of, you know, maybe you've got, you know, just piles of paper everywhere and you start cutting things out and seeing how they go together. But, you know, there's a a wall installation that I'm looking at, which is comprised of, you know, red and then like pastel pinks and blues. And they almost kind of look figurative and they have a similar shape to the collage forms, but then... I'm just wondering, like, in a, in a piece like that, hopefully you know which one I'm talking about, but yes, how is that organized? Is that something where you then go in and just kind of map it out with these shapes that you have, or is it something that's really planned out before you go in? You've got the specs of the wall and, you know. That's that's from a, a solo show from a couple of years ago. And if I ever have the great opportunity and privilege to have solo exhibitions, I usually present kind of known quantities, like this is a a team of uh, framed works mm-hmm. and this is how I'll be displaying them. But I always want to leave myself the open-ended opportunity for an improvisational work to happen. And in that piece, I spent a week or so just cutting out wood shapes and painting them. And so I had this vocabulary, this stock of objects, and I knew I had roughly a kind of a 30 foot by 25 foot wall to make it happen. And once I got to the gallery, thankfully the, the, interns hung all of the framed work and I started early in the morning just with a drill and how you see them is how they went up. And so I was looking for these relationships of contrast and complement and uh, allowed it to develop on the wall throughout the course of one day. Well, one thing that's really interesting about this piece, especially to me is just the, I don't know, it almost kind of reminds me of like Dr. Seuss, uh, you know, like pieces and well, you know, like in terms of having like a cliff face that like is just barely hanging on by a thread. But, you know, some of these pieces are kind of connected with very, very small, you know, points. And so it kind of builds a little bit of attention and, you know, your eye even starts to kind of follow the outline shape, you know, against the, the white of the wall. So, I mean, again, it's really interesting to kind of, you know, see it digitally, but I'm sure, you know, see it in person. Well, thank you. Um, and I, you know, mentioning, Dr. Seuss. I don't necessarily know if I <laughs> kind of drew, I was drawing from that well, but at that, I think at that time and that, that kind of the work that I was making at that time, I was really thinking about the potential for visual art, you know, like opaque, purely visual art to communicate comedy or humor. Mm-hmm. And so these kind of blumpy forms and these kind of bulges and lumps and nuggets they became a part of the vocabulary and it was almost like my formal, like abstract formalism meets slapstick comedy. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that show was called delicatessen. And so there was a very tongue in cheek kind of a humor and understated humor to everything. Well, and I do want to clarify cause I don't normally bring up Dr. Seuss on this podcast, <laughs> but there's, well, there's just like a playfulness about it, but for whatever yes. reason, it reminded me of the way things are balanced out. You know, there's kind of like an impossibility, you know, with the way that these are balanced out that build that tension. And again, for whatever reason this morning, um, <laughs> uh, maybe it's because I'm looking at like, Oh my gosh, I've got to go to, 
get back into the classroom soon, virtually. But again, it's interesting, too, because there's another sculptural installation piece that kind of, you know, is maybe somewhat similar to that, maybe a little further down with these kind of like almost like a nest of like these sticks kind of like building out from the wall as well. So I would imagine then you're looking at these different opportunities as things to kind of explore, you know, just different stimuli or I don't know. How how is that piece like come about in comparison? Uh, Well, that piece was a part of this great curatorial project here in the Tampa Bay area. Curator Catherine Gibson, she kind of goes under the aegis of Art House 3. And there was a design firm in St. Pete, Florida, and they had this beautiful front window space. And she thought, I'm going to curate exhibitions, short run exhibitions in this drive-by window. And so she invited me to participate. Uh, all of those kind of the nest of sticks, it, it's it's kind of crazy. That was pre-existing when I got there. And oh, so wow. my kind of my charge, at least kind of how I was thinking about it, was how do I create contrast with that? How do I kind of create a dynamic conversation? Because it, in some way, if you look at m- some of my other sculptural work, that could fit right into the language. Mm-hmm. You know, plywood, it feels very remnant. There is a, an improvisational quality to it. And so I, I essentially built around this this nest of sticks with that intention of creating a, a contrast. Well, and obviously the color, you know, is something that's strikingly different just because there's, you know, such a variety of color in your work in comparison to just that raw material. In all of those wood blocks, I selected the same kind of plywood so that the edge is exposed. So there's this little bit of a DNA or a little bit of a nod to the material through line in that installation. To go back to the collages a little bit, I mean, is that almost like that initial starting process then where you're kind of writing, making collages, then making a sculpture, then kind of, you know, like kind of going through in a circle? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's prescriptive in kind of like a circuit. Mm-hmm. like that. But uh, once I came down to Florida, I, I started to write two-person dialogues. They almost look like a, a theater script. And in some way, they would be abstractions of conversations I would have with my wife, abstractions of uh, things I would hear on the radio or in the news or observations, kind of poetic observations. But it was about this kind of back and forth. It almost looks like a, a text thread. So some of those zines were just these long dialogues. Um, and so, again, I would I would say, all right, you know, how can I clarify this? This is, is literal nonsense. And I, using those collage to clarify some of that dialogue back and forth. And I'm still using that same format of, of a two-person dialogue being the generator for some of the paper collage works and some of the sculptural works. Even this week, I'm working on a series of, of sculpture and... I find myself in the studio and I'm like cutting that shape out for a collage. It's like almost a part of like, how does this behave in a different phase or a format? Well, and one curiosity that I have is, and again, maybe this is something that alludes to that sense of dialogue. There's some pieces that, you know, will have more text in them. Obviously like the books, you know, usually have yes. titles, but then in terms of the collage pieces, the, the E, I don't know if you're, <laughs> I don't know if you're giving away something. No, not at all. <laughs> but I'm especially kind of curious about that because, again, even something like that to me is starting to think about that relationship of language, which, you know, you're clearly something something that's interested in, in terms of that communication. So, you know, the arrival of E was really uh, important. That happened in graduate school. My grandfather had willed me a manila envelope full of all of the maps of the places that he traveled in his life. And they're beautiful maps, you know. But there was one piece of Xerox in it was it zoomed in to a part in the Atlantic Ocean and it was zoomed in so it cropped out some of the the typography and there was just a, a small E in the middle of this large expanse. And I just thought it was so mysterious. And I found myself like obsessively thinking about why he had this fragment with a small E in it. And it it created this kind of antenna and I was going around walking around school, walking around town and E's are coming at me <laughs> and, and I'm noticing E's just because my attention is now kind of open. And, and so I, I started making E's in graduate school. If you, if you go to Athens, especially on the UGA campus, there are E's everywhere. <laughs> there are E's in the library. Um, there are E's in some of the ventilation ducts. 
and it became this kind of just an important kind of an emblem for kind of again the unknown and and so e e continues to persist my daughter's name starts with the letter e of course (laughs) (laughs) well and again it's it's interesting to think about you know just seeing something like that you know kind of spark this in your in your work and then you know one of the things that's so interesting to me is that it doesn't seem like there's necessarily like you're you've described a couple of times like a rigid kind of system in terms of the way that you kind of might work through some of these but you know if you start like a collage out i mean is it literally just kind of reacting to a shape or are they on the wall when you're working on them and then piecing them together or are they on a table i'm again I want to get into the nitty-gritty about you know tearing versus exacto okay. knives and stuff <laughs> <laughs> well i love uh you know the the impetus to to make a collage so sometimes it'll be a singular piece of paper mm-hmm. and i'll say all right now i can start to to kind of see how that pushes against the edges of of a white page or of a of a, of a wall and you know as far as the paper collage i think torn edge i think you know very refined exacto edges i think all of those uh, relate to the potential for each component to have a lot of packed information mm-hmm since it's not mimetic, you know, I'm not like describing anything really. It comes down to like how those, the color, the shape and the edge relate to each other. And they create that kind of, there's all these like productive little tensions in each collage with that vocabulary kind of like oscillating. Well, and one of the things that I, you know, usually will ask people about is, you know, their interest in terms of like communicating something, you know, in in terms of intention versus, you know, leaving something open for a viewer. Where do you fit in on that? I mean, again, I feel like there's a lot of, this probably should be a coffee table book of just, you know, that, (laughs) you know, where do you fit in on the viewer? You know, I like the viewer. I let them do whatever. I don't want them to know anything or, you know, whatever. I've treated my relationship to the viewer in, in some way, like a, like a dialogue, like I anticipate that, that they're going to receive information and, and maybe give information back. But I think there is a lot uh, to be said for a, a playful relationship with the viewer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think formally and, and visually, I think that I accept the responsibility that I want to engage them and keep it visual for as long as I can. But I also think that looking at especially the collage work, starting to create collage works that almost look like my studio table. Like there's a freshness to arranging things on a perfectly clean table. It's very satisfying. And so I'm, I'm kind of setting up this kind of subject object dialogue in those of where, am I looking down on them? Am I looking through them like a traditional pictorial plane? And I like them kind of having that multi-stable experience i've had some people say oh you know some of the collage look like they're overhead photography of landscapes which i you know i would say i don't necessarily agree with but there is an openness to how one can read things and of course that impacts how the form manifests and kind of cultivates content even if we're talking about like the nature or the behavior of those collage like we're talking about a diverse context that's coming together at this meeting point, this intersection. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And so I, I, I don't know if I need, you know, need people to go uh, much deeper than that uh, of truly mm-hmm. enjoying them and, and, you know, finding something maybe, maybe profound in things that are, that have a sense of play, that have a sense of humor, that have a sense of levity to them. And so it's more of a feeling that I'm trying to establish with a viewer. Well, and one of the thing, again, that's apparent to both the, those works that are similar to the installation ones and then the, the collage works is just kind of the tension kind of created. And then especially the way that some shapes will kind of carry over or get mirrored in other spots, you know, curves oh, yeah. or, you know, um, edges all aligning. So, again, there's this interesting kind of intention that I, I would imagine somebody could read, you know, like that it's not just random. Yeah. But I like, again, how you start to kind of want to formulate, oh, that kind of feels like a head shape yes. or, you know. There's something, I mean, there's something beautiful about being suggestive. I think that, that there's an invitation for a viewer to participate in this, in this conversation. I think if the work I made was maybe more declarative, uh, then it would lead to a specific 
maybe meaning or, or, or discourse, but kind of staying in this region of suggestion. I, I, I mean, I can probably tell you a lot of different, <laughs> different moments in my, in my life where people are trying to kind of guess what things are, which is, you know, equal parts fun and not fun. But <laughs> You know, in in some way, they are exactly what they are, and in some way, they are so suggestive of the things that they could be, and like I, that's that's the that's the room, the very dark room I want to kind of reside in in my studio. Well, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, but the idea of you know having something that you could kind of continue exploring, you know, in terms of either a process or just kind of a way of working, is that something that you kind of still really feel at home with in terms of this work? That there's a lot of room. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Every time I kind of hit a moment where a cycle is kind of coming to its conclusion, I I think about, all right, well, how can we flip this? How can we kind of like draw something out of that to create a next step, a next step or have another zone that it's participating in? And, and, and of course, you know, with, with quarantine that <laughs> becomes very concentrated kind of conversation because you have so much time to reflect. I'm sitting in my home studio and I'm looking at the collage for a very long time and I'm thinking about trusting that, all right, where is this going? How does this transform? How does this move forward? And so that that kind of generosity in the work or my kind of like curiosity persists and, and fuels me still. Well, and especially kind of considering that, you know, that's something that we talked about very early on. I mean, is there a way that, you know, COVID and, you know, the times that we're in have kind of influenced, you know, maybe what's kind of on your radar in the future or in the near future, especially? When quarantine happened and when, when COVID was really kind of becoming known, I remember on social media, I had a, a friend just post a, an image of the clouds and, and pose the question, how can I possibly continue making the work that I've always made in these times? And it was like, you know, that's a little bit of a, an egg that cracks in your mind of not only kind of this is what I make and this is what I do, but also realizing the responsibility and that kind of moral component that exists in being an artist if you so choose to invite that into your studio practice which i absolutely do and so i think having a greater sense of reflection with the things i've made has definitely been a part of of quarantine i i definitely was uh the kind of artist that i was like a little bit of an art jock kind of working it you know really working it and really making a lot of things and productivity, you know, as a reflection of how I grew up, you know, you are what your hands can do. And ha there was this real high value on, you know, being prolific. I think that quarantine and, and making art in the time of COVID has made me rethink that in a very deep way for the work to be, to utilize drafts more, disciplines outside of of visual art and thinking about their process, you know, like how does, how does a writer uh, draft an, an essay or a novel or a, a screenplay? How does a chef develop a recipe through iteration and over time and through availability of ingredients? How does a, a comedian work out bits on stage and then slowly chisel that and sculpt that into what would be the hour special I think those kinds mm -hmm. of ideas are really a part of, of where my head is right now with my studio practice. I believe that you have some things maybe in the works. I know, you know, everything yes. has been shifted around, but what are some of the things going on in terms of exhibiting and, and things like that, curating? Uh, so I, I'm a part of a, an exhibition that's coming up at the Dunedin Fine Arts Center, which is a really fantastic art center in the Tampa Bay area. My wife, Janelle Young, and I, are participating in, in an exhibition called Between Us, and it is it's a, a multimedia exhibition of celebrated creative partners from the Tampa Bay area. So, artists like Murnette Larson and Roger Palmer, Carol Mickett and Robert Stackhouse, Carol Dameron and Herb Snitz are going to be a part of this show. It's curated by Nathan Beard and Catherine Bergman. 
And I think that this conversation about quarantine and, and art and COVID is going to manifest itself really in a, in a, in an interesting way in this show. Well, especially thinking about, you know, partners, you know, in terms of how they are dealing with this time and, and staying creative <laughs> and that relationship, you know, that's interesting. Um, of course. And, and, you know, if you have a family, how do you start to, how do you start to, uh, create compartments for creative productivity uh, while you're trying to be a, a good partner, while you're trying to be a good parent, while you're trying to do your best at your job. And so there's a, an overlay of complexity that I hope is, is available in this exhibition. That was the big one, right? Yes. And that is uh, September uh, 1st to October 18th at the Dunedin Fine Arts Center. Remind everybody where, where to find your work and, and to follow you. My website is ryanmccullaart.com, but I also have uh, an Instagram, Studio. I also participate in an amazing uh, collaborative project with artist Nick Satinover, and that is called Small Bars, and you can find us at Small Bars, Small Bars on Instagram. Awesome. Well, again, I hope people take you up on that and follow. Again, the Instagram is kind of like brimming with all sorts of activities. So definitely lots to check out there. So most definitely. Again, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk to me today about your work. There's a trash can. I feel like I have to record that because I got distracted. But <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you so much for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a blast kind of getting to know you more and talk about your work. Absolutely. And I, I just have to say on a, on a kind of a closing note that your podcast was really important to me when uh, I was uh, in between uh, graduate school and undergraduate. It really helped me feel connected to process and dialogue and discourse. So I appreciate all the work you're doing. Thanks once again to Ryan for joining me. You can check out his work at ryanmccullaart.com. And of course, be sure to follow him on Instagram at Studio. The current exhibition that he's in between us at the Dunedin Fine Arts Center in Tampa, Florida, with his wife Janelle Young, is closing on the 18th. But the new collaboration with Nick Satinover for Small Bars just came out. It's part of Mid-America Print Council 2020, and it's called Track Prints Layered Sounds. It's a collaborative effort of various artists that are making original prints, as well as various songs slash audio files. You can find links for a uh, YouTube of it on studiobreak.com, as well as a link to their album on Bandcamp, which you can buy. It's super cool. Definitely go check it out and buy it. I am excited to announce that our 2020 Pro Competition is now open. Our juror Liz Tran will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid-career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition is open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to studiobreak.com, look for our competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are, and including a website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed, and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, studiobreak.com, look for the competition page for more details. Again, the deadline for this is November 1st. If you're new to Studio Break, head on over there and check out some of the archived episodes that you've missed out on. Once again, we have a ton of different artists there, each with images of their artwork as well as links to their websites and these interviews that you can listen to right in the default player or click those links and subscribe to the podcast. There's been recent interviews with Kate Kaminsky, who's a ceramic artist, Donovan Widmere, who is a jeweler and metalsmith. We also talked to various collage artists like Paul Lockney or our interview that came out last week with Jill Christian. So be sure and peruse. And of course, if you like the podcast, let me know. Again, it's great to get reviews on Apple or Spotify, wherever. And of course, I love hearing from listeners. So be sure to shout out on social media. Once again, make sure to like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And, of course, be sure to follow on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. I do want to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his work at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, go visit DavidLinoway.com. And, of course, you can find me on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at DavidLinoway. So be sure to check out my work, say hello, and 
that's our episode this week. Hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hope that your studio is productive. We'll talk to you real soon. 